Welcome to the Beautiful and True Project podcast. This is a place where we talk about beauty and truth, the things that are most important to us, the things that ground us, and the things that uplift us. My guests are not celebrities. They are, in many ways, leading kind of ordinary lives, but they pay extraordinary attention to the world around them, and that makes the difference. My guest this week is Samer Hassan. Samer was a student in my public speaking class at Harold Washington College, and one of those people you just know is going to change the world. His life story takes us from Palestine to Venezuela to the U.S., and from the loss of literally everything to graduating from an Ivy League university this past May and becoming the engagement manager at Young Invincibles in D.C., Slight sidebar, he had to reschedule this interview one night because he was needed in drafting a letter to the Senate. You know, like everyone does on a Wednesday evening. Samer's story is unique, it's heartbreaking, and it's triumphant all at once. And his sense of both the vast beauty of the world and the true depths of its ugliness, well, it's utterly compelling. But fair warning, his story does have some dark moments in it. So if you happen to be listening with littles, this may not be the episode for them. But if you want to be inspired and challenged, this is definitely the episode for you. A couple of things to note. The first is that our audio connection was occasionally wobbly. You'll still be able to hear pretty much everything, but it's imperfect in spots, so you'll have to forgive that. And you'll have to forgive a few interviewing gaffes on my part. I left them in because there can be great truth in misspeaking, in not always saying things perfectly, especially when we're willing to recognize our errors and learn from them. But oh, was it tempting to edit them out. In this episode, Samer and I talk about his story, about his growth as a devout Muslim, his love for his familial homeland of Palestine and for the Venezuelan families who helped him in his hour of greatest need. We also talk about his rock collection, a recipe for a skin treatment that he absolutely swears by, and the most used emoji in the Middle East. If you're trying to guess, you're almost certainly wrong. (laughs) This conversation is a doozy, so get ready. I am, I am just over, over the moon to be able to talk with you, um, especially about things that are beautiful and true, because I have always known you as someone who is very interested in both, particularly, I think, perhaps truth, but definitely both. Um, I don't know, would you say that that description is accurate of you? Are you asking me if I enjoy the world's beauty and do I seek the world's truth? Yes, I do every day of my life. Yes, that for sure. And also the, the combination of the two together. Because I think, I think they're easy to separate. 
like this thing, this is beautiful and this is true. And some things that are true are definitely not beautiful. And I have a question about that for you later. Um, but the things that are both beautiful and true, it seems to me that you are a person who is kind of fundamentally interested in, in those things. I feel like a lot of people have a certain perception of me in which they, they believe or see or feel or hear that I am like always on this mission. And it's because I, you know, when you talk about the concept of what is beautiful and what is true or what is just beautiful or what is just true, um, because I think it's because I've seen like such a very, very heinous and ugly and like demoralizing part of humanity and the human heart and human emotions and, and actions. And I've also seen the absolute most beautiful and best and kind aspects of what society can do and what humans can achieve and do for each other. And so I just want to help to create and I guess to help perpetuate that notion of, you know, we kind of all live on this planet together, so we should be looking out for each other, right? I just always think about that. It's like, mm -hmm. why are you... I, I just, you know what I never understand? I never understand why people honk. I never understand why people honk the horn. It, it literally does nothing. <laughs> like, it, everyone just starts honking. And I just look around like, why? Why? It's not doing anything. What are you doing? <laughs> so, <laughs> now that's true. I'm expressing my anger. <laughs> no, you're right. Although I feel like I have gotten in an argument with a cab driver before where he was honking at me and I was yelling and, and making probably rude gestures at him. And there was something both beautiful and true about that. I'm lucky that nobody got hurt, I suppose. <laughs> um, so you, you just mentioned having seen the really, truly ugly and heinous as well as the the really beautiful and true. Would you be willing to talk about those a little bit? Yes, I can. And the I, answer um, can absolutely be no. <laughs> no, I realize that, um, that there's power in my story now. And at first I was embarrassed or just still reeling from the trauma in which, in which, Mm -hmm. Like I felt all the time. And I, I mean, trauma is trauma forever. So you just deal with how to deal. You just learn how to deal with it. Um, but when I was, I, I grew up in a very conservative family. We were, we were, we were born in Venezuela. We came to America when I was three years old. I was the youngest of five children. We grew up very Muslim and it was beautiful, but I realized that the concept of Islam um, was perceived differently with my family because just diving into the actual, actual religion and speaking to scholars and speaking to community leaders, and, and it was like a different, a different form of what my family thought Islam was. This is as you're growing up, as you're getting older, you're you're really looking into the religion and seeing that 
the way your your family practices it is not necessarily how others practice it. Is that what you mean? Practices it, yes, and also like I guess embodies it as well. There is um I I've met so many wonderful like Muslims throughout my life, and they're all such amazing people, and and they really seek community change and and to change the institutions in which we grow up in for the better. But I feel like humans have co-opted. Now, this is this is very clearly not mutually exclusive for for Islam, and but like others have done this with their religions as well, where people have just co-opted the messages in the religion to basically help in their own agendas. And for me, I, I grew up. I wasn't really like I wasn't allowed to talk to girls. I was only supposed to hang out with my cousins that were boys. I like there's no concept of the weekend with my family. It's like you go to school, you study, you go home. <laughs> that's that's it. And you know, and play soccer. <laughs> so <laughs> and, and and for me it's like I was just a kid. I was we were all like undocumented in the United States and I really couldn't do much. I, I quite literally had no agency. And so, so one day I realized that I was gay and, and I instantly realized that it was not okay with my family. And I was led to believe I no longer believe this, but I was led to believe that, you know, Islam really didn't support homosexuality at all. And I really felt like I was sick, like I needed, I needed to get these like thoughts out of my mind. And I was just, I became such a depressed teenager and Mm -hmm. until I finally to break out of my own like bubble and cocoon in which I grew up in with my family. And I realized that it wasn't their fault. Like neither of my parents even went, even finished their freshman year of high school. Like they needed to flee their village outside Jerusalem because (laughs) it was extremely violent. And the, the Israeli occupation had, had just, completely overturned their lives for the absolute worst. So they needed to pick up everything they had and and create their family, all my brothers and sisters and I, and they created that in Venezuela. They lived in Venezuela for 20 years. That's where we were all born. And I realized they never had the privilege of education like at all. All they did was, okay, we have to have kids and we have to support them. My mother was a was a housewife all her life, and my father owned like a grocery store or like did like other things. I'm not necessarily sure, so I don't want to just say that he did things. Um, so, but I know he like owned grocery stores to so just get by and provide for us. Like we were never like in need. We never went hungry. But I also grew up knowing that like 
I could never ask my parents for anything. I was never that kid that asked for, for a PlayStation or anything like that because I knew they couldn't afford it. So I didn't bother. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was thankful for that, to be honest, because I grew up outside. I would play all the time outside and I love nature, even to this day. Like I literally correct, collect rocks. <laughs> like, I'm a nerd. <laughs> and <laughs> I love it. <laughs> And I realized, like, so when I finally started to get out of my bubble, I I saw that, you know, like, other people were living their lives, and they were having a great time, and I wanted to be a part of that, and I wanted to know that. And my friends really, like, like were really there for me. They became my family. And then right after I graduated high school one day just out of the blue my parents were like we need to take you back to Venezuela because you are getting your green card we just have to go back to Venezuela and go to the embassy and pick up your green card there and being the naive 18 year old that I was knowing nothing of immigration only that I didn't have a status in America I was like, okay, how long are we going for? They're like, oh, we're just going for a couple of days. So and we left the next day that they told me, like early in the morning. So I didn't think of anything of it. We got to Venezuela. We got to Caracas, that's the capital. And my parents said we needed to take mm-hmm. another flight to another town called Barquisimeto, and that's where I was born. It's closer to the border of Colombia. So I was like, why are we going there? And my mother said that my father had some friends there that he wanted to see. I'm like, okay, once again, I felt nothing of it. We, we got there, fell asleep. I woke up in the morning and my father wasn't there. And I asked my mother where he was. And she said, you know, your, your father went to go get food. I'm like, oh, okay. Okay. So he came back and he didn't have any food with him. And I was thinking to myself, well, where's the food? (laughs) Like I haven't eaten since yesterday. And I was just confronted with my, by my parents. And they were telling me like, you know, we know what you are. It's like, what do you mean? And I instantly knew. I instantly knew, like the entire ambiance of the room just changed. And, and you know, they were saying this in Arabic, they were saying this in Spanish, they were saying this in English because we're a trilingual family. And they were just mm. basically like calling me a whore and a prostitute and a faggot and that I was sick and I needed, and I needed to like get that out of me. And they beat me to such a pulp in which like my throat was slit like they my teeth were broken and I was just tortured for hours and it was it I just figured okay well this is where I die and that's just where I gave up and when you talk about like the beautiful and true I really believe it because I have seen what I believe was evil. And mm-hmm. I basically told my parents, like, I, I don't want to be gay. Like, I'll do anything. 
So they said, we're going to take you to shock therapy and then we're gonna, you're going to join the Venezuelan army so you can learn how to be a real man. I was like, that's fine. Okay. So after hours, they finally agreed and they let me go. And then the first thing they, they wanted me to do was to cut my hair off. It was like really long at the time. And, but I also had like blood on me and they told me to like change my shirt first. So I went downstairs with my father and we were at this hotel and my father was talking to the concierge and asking her, this was 2009, by the way. I don't know if I ever mentioned that. Mm -hmm. Um, And he was telling her like, oh, let me use your, let me use that. How do I use like the payphone or something? And while she was talking to him, I was like, making hand gestures at her like telling her like call the police like help me and and like I showed her like my mouth and it was just like full of blood and she just froze she she didn't do anything I think she was just shocked I mean I don't blame her but I was just like help me (laughs) and she she didn't do anything and my father started walking away and I saw an opening in the hotel and I just bolted. I ran, I ran for my life. And my father told me, if you run, I will shoot you. So I ran in zigzags because I kept thinking that he was pointing a gun at me. So I ran and ran and ran and I didn't hear any gunshots. And and I just kept running. It must've been, I don't know. And I was just, Blood was like trickling down from my mouth. I had like a slit on my throat. Like it was just, it was so traumatic for me. But what killed me more was just beyond that demoralizing thing was that like no one would pay attention to me. I like literally went in an intersection and I was just like yelling. I was like blabbering away. My Spanish was terrible at the time because I was in ESL for so long that I told my parents I didn't want to speak Spanish anymore because I needed to learn English. So my Spanish was horrible. So I couldn't properly communicate that like, hey, please, my parents tried to kill me, like help me. (laughs) No one, you know, no one understood so I was like knocking on people's car doors and I just, and nothing happened. And I just plotted on, on the, on this corner and I just started bawling my eyes out. And when you talk about the beautiful and true, there was this woman that just came out of nowhere and just picked me up and took me to her home and gave me water with sugar. And she says it, it helped me calm down. And she introduced mm. me to her family and helped me. And, and they got me to go um, to a lawyer's office. And then from there, like, I wouldn't see my parents again for a while. So I got there and they basically told me, like, we're going to take you to the embassy and then you can go home. I'm like, okay. Because I thought my parents had actually gotten me a green card. What I found out, like, two weeks later was that, I didn't have any status in America and I was told by the American embassy, the American embassy in which I thought was like a glimmer of hope for me in a country that I knew nothing of. And I I was taken there by wonderful, wonderful people that literally drove four hours to, to, to get me there. And 
the embassy told me I couldn't go home. I wasn't allowed back in America because I was, quote unquote, I was nothing in America. And I, mm. how do you tell this to an 18 year old that just barely escaped death? Like I'm already like reeling <laughs> in trauma. And so when that man in the consul in the, in the American embassy in Caracas told me that I just, I lost it. I took all these papers and I literally threw it at his face and I just started making such a large scene and I bolted from the front door. I went through like a inaccessible exit or something like that, but I was being chased by the, by the military. So I was running from the soldier. <laughs> so it's not funny. That's not funny, but I'm laughing only because uh, because I've never heard the full story. I've only heard a small piece of it. And it's, oh, God. So, okay, now you're being chased by the military. Oh, God, Samer. Well, I ran from the military. And I know I can't outrun the American military, y'all. So, so there was this fence. And the American embassy in Caracas is overlooking a cliff. So I jumped over the fence and I threatened like in front of everyone, there was hundreds of people outside and the, the military was there. And I told them, I was like, unless you help me, I swear to God, I will jump because I literally have nothing to lose right now. You told me I, I am nothing. And the consul general of the American embassy came out and he promised me and he told me, he's like, don't jump. I swear to you, I will do everything in my power to help you and I'll get you home. I was like, okay. So I was taken back from the fence and the Venezuelan, the Venezuelan family who had taken me in, um, th this was a different family from the ones that helped me on the street. They took me to the lawyer's office and I never really got to properly thank them, but I, I pray for them every day, I, I promise you. Um, but this family was a friend of the lawyer, which happened to be very interesting because every single person in this family was either an accountant or a lawyer and they all, they all helped me. They all, they took me to their home and back to Barquisimeto. That's the city that I was born in, by the way. And mm -hmm. they literally gave me a home for five months. I lived with them and they never once asked me for anything for anything. And I still talk to them. Even to this day, I still talk to them. 11 years later, actually, it's the 11-year anniversary of what happened in Venezuela. That It was yesterday. It was actually, it was July 22nd, 2009. And wow. Yeah. After five months, I finally um, came back to Chicago and my friends gave me a place to stay and I lived with them. I rented out rooms. I lived in very bad places as well Many for, for many years, just trying to get on my feet because I was still technically undocumented, but I was granted humanitarian parole. Humanitarian parole is given to just a handful of people throughout the world. And so they granted that to me and I was there for, I, I, it allowed me to apply for a work permit and to apply for a visa called um, VAWA the Violence Against Women Act. But if you are 18 or younger, it, you don't have to be like, like a girl or a woman or anything like that. You can apply just as a child. So I barely mm -hmm. made the threshold 
and I was accepted into that. And I got my green card three years ago. Mm. And it was then that I realized, like, I, all I wanted to do was go to college. All I wanted to do was just educate myself because my parents never even had the chance. So all I wanted to do was make them proud and then create a better life for them. I, to be honest, I really don't blame them at all. My father died in 2011 or something, I think. And um, I went to that funeral. It was terrible. And I was like, definitely like ostracized, but I still went and paid my respects. And, but I, I realized it's like, all I wanted to do was honor them and honor my family. And I actually really started to learn more about my religion as the years went by. I began college in 2015, I believe. I couldn't afford anything, so I can only pay for like one or two classes at the time. I didn't qualify for any FAFSA or anything because of my immigration status. Mm -hmm. But um, I was really able to qualify for FAFSA after a couple years, and that helped me finish out my time at Harold Washington. And then you talk about like what that beautiful and true was in, in terms of advocacy. It was that I needed to advocate because I was going to die. And I realized so many more people don't have the privilege to tell their stories. So now that I can and I'm in this position and now that I'm educated, now it's like, oh, well, I know how and I have built a network and I can make a difference and I could help people and that's what's beautiful and true there's also beauty in that there's also beauty in the truth of my story because I became who I am today like I'm an advocate I fight to give a voice to people that feel like they don't have one and for me, I don't take the I don't take no for an answer. If you feel like you don't have a voice, well, I'm gonna move heaven and hell to make you feel like you do have one. And now I graduated from an Ivy League. Like what? And <laughs> like, like from Columbia oh, wow. University. <laughs> yeah. And now it's like, wow, I'm I'm a manager at a at a national policy and advocacy organization. So not only do I get an amazing salary to do what I love, but now like I truly see my purpose. My purpose was defined and created for me July 22nd, 2009. That's Thank you for sharing that. Uh That is that is such a life history, and to have to look at how far you've come, it that almost see. I'm kind of at a loss for words, honestly, um, because you in class you spoke just a little bit about this, and um, and to hear the full story is is just astonishing, um, and I was already astonished, which is part of why I'm talking with you. Um, I, here are my memories of you from class. You were always on fire and always eager to learn. Um, you were, wanted to devour all of it, uh, I think, because you knew it would help you on your mission. Um, but I remember 
I don't know if if anybody listening knows a little bit about Venezuela, but the country is going through years of really, really difficult times. Um, that doesn't even begin to express it. The, the country has, to a large to a large extent, fallen apart. Would would you say that's accurate, Samer? If I can paint you a picture of Germany, 1929, in which those black and white mm. pictures of those children carrying stacks of, of, of cash with them to keep them warm and, and burning, burning the cash to stay alive, that is exactly what it's like in Venezuela. It's hyperinflation in which the interest rate has is seriously... Um, and I'm not even exaggerating this ridiculous number, but it has like charged through 3000%. And, and and that's, I think the last time I checked, that was the official inflation rate. That's the inflation rate. Oh. Even more real is like over a million percent. It, they're not even a fraction of a penny. And these are like $100 like bills. The equivalent of a $100 bill is like you're burning it to stay alive. It's bad. Well, the the reason I bring this up is because in in that semester, you were organizing students to donate supplies that you were then finding ways to ship. I believe on shipping containers <laughs> to Venezuela to try and help. Am I am I getting this story wrong? Have I inflated it? No, it was just it was just such a mission. Like, so I I gathered the supplies here. At first, like I paid for it myself, and it was just way too expensive on the student budget. <laughs> so I asked for donations, and I um I sent it to Miami. The Venezuelan family that took me in had a friend with a boat in Miami. And from there, the boxes, the containers were were taken across um, the Caribbean and to land at nighttime in the Venezuelan coasts because the Venezuelan soldiers would steal the crates and boxes at the time. So it had to reach the coast at night. That was just a logistical, like, oh my god, that was that was tough. Okay, yes, but. But this is what you were doing. You were working, I think, at least part-time. I think you were working full-time and taking classes and organizing an entire supply chain to help people in Venezuela who needed it so desperately. This is the kind of person you are. And it's just extraordinary, Samer. And I'm I'm going to... I'm just I'm just going to say that, and you know that. I know you know that, but you're going to be too, probably too modest. You're like, oh, poo poo, but no, you are extraordinary. Well, thank you, thank you kindly. But it doesn't end there. It really doesn't end there. I was only able to send like maybe a couple, a, a couple like boxes full of supplies, and they're very. It's they're definitely out of those supplies by now, but right now I realize I really need yeah. to choose my battle. And I now, like for the longest time when I was at Columbia, I just I needed to educate myself and I needed to build my network. So one day, 
when a situation arises in which I need to act fast, I'll have a stronger base of support, a, a base of support that's a bit more influential than what it used to be in 2017. <laughs> than, a, than a handful of Harold Washington students? <sighs> hey, I would never underestimate a handful of Harold Washington students because we literally, like, <laughs> changed the tuition structure. We got people fired. Like, we, we took people, like, man, <laughs> we fought. We fought. As soon as I said that, I wished that I could take it back because I know, I know what Harold Washington students are capable of. And uh, they're incredibly powerful. I was just thinking today, um, my job had a, had a workforce panel. And one of the people on the panel was a person from student government at Harold Washington College. And I was just jumping for joy because I was like, yes, yes. yes! <laughs> And I had never even met her. And I was thinking, I'm like, you keep it up. I just, Harold Washington never ceases to amaze me. I love that damn school. When I start making millions, oh my God, I'm going to buy all those kids. All, not even kids, all those students, their whole tuition. I promise you. I, I completely believe you. Uh, my life has been fundamentally changed by by teaching at Harold Washington. The, the stories that I have heard, the obstacles that many of our students face every day, and yet they are there. They are grinding it out. They are dedicated to themselves, to their families, to making the world a better place. And it is, it's just brilliant and inspiring. And beautiful and true. And beautiful and true, absolutely. Thank you for <laughs> thank you for bringing my own <laughs> podcast back to me. <laughs> um, part of what you were telling in your story was um, you were talking about how Islam is, of course, not the only religion to to co opt uh, some of the dogma for for people's own purposes, and that is absolutely true. Um, I mean, well, goodness, it's never happened with Christianity. <laughs> I, I do want to push back on what you just said. You just said that it co-ops, but I would push back on that statement. And I would say that, that humans co-opt the religion because reading the Quran and, and learning so much more about the religion, especially as I grow older, I'm like, this has no message of hatred. This has no message of ridiculousness. Like people, people love to say that, but it really doesn't. It's like, wow, this is actually beautiful. And, and just diving into the scholars of, of like the 18th century, the 19th century, even now, it's like people don't get it. People still think that Islam is, is, is like, you know, stuck in the sixth century countries and governments and certain societies are stuck in time sometimes, but it's not the religion. Yes. It's, it's people in power. There's my two cents. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. You are absolutely right. Um, and people in power have, have taken Christianity and made it into something that it never was intended to be um, violent and hateful. And there's no, 
there's no violence and hate. <laughs> yeah. Oh, people suck sometimes, huh? <laughs> That's. <laughs> It's funny on a on a podcast about the beautiful and true. That is the conclusion I come to right this very second. People occasionally <laughs> suck very very badly. <laughs> mm. So, what do you think? I mean, I, I sent you this quote from Emma Goldman, and it's actually kind of a it's not a real quote from her, but she said something like this, which is that um, if I can't dance. I don't want to be in your revolution. And what I think that means for most people who hear it is that if there's not joy in activism, if there's not joy in in change, if there's not beauty in change, then maybe it's not worth doing. And I'm wondering how you feel about that. I Do mean, you, I what, completely agree. I completely yeah? agree. If you want to, if you want to keep, purporting that to to think and say and act in instances that that are like you know be the change that you wish to see and and you know create the world that you want to be in and you know the, the quotes that everyone and their mother uses mm-hmm. you have to you have to be willing to really back that up and the, i guess the most beautiful instance of like solidarity i've seen was it was actually, I think, you know, I don't know if it was during your class, but it was during that semester, I believe, something like that. I was protesting outside of the Trump Tower, and I had just left class, and I, I, I think I went like with like maybe two or three friends, I don't know, but we went, we were protesting outside the Trump Tower, and there were thousands of people there, and the police had ordered the bus drivers to to like to to keep going or go away or something like that but one of the bus drivers stopped his his bus and he opened it and and he literally let us all on he's like come on get on get on top and he took my hand and he pushed me up on top of the roof of the bus and he's like Say your message. You say it. Don't worry what people, what what the police think. Don't worry what 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 people are thinking or doing. You have a voice. Go ahead. And oh my God, I I stood up on that bus and I like gave a small speech and and like so many more people came up there and like people were handing each other their phones so they could strangers, just complete strangers. Like, Hey, can you hold my, my $700 phone so I can get up on top of this bus? Oh yeah, sure. No worries. You want me to hold your keys to like the trust was there. The solidarity was there. We all got on that bus and I realized I, there was a picture in the news of, of me on that bus. Cause I'm holding this really neon green, like sign at the time and it was Fox and they're like protesters take over the bus like riots to begin and it was just like, and I was just cracking off because I was like oh no no you really don't understand we were, we were quite literally invited to be on that so on the bus so oh so, you know if I can't dance that during that revolution then I yeah there is no revolution Oh, I love that story. I love it so much. Um, I, I dislike that Fox got it so wrong, but but they often do when it comes to protests. 
they want to tell it. The media in general wants to tell us as simple a story as possible. And that's unfortunate. Um, can you tell me about, uh, maybe, maybe this is, maybe this is that moment, but, um, but is, can you tell me about a moment in your life that is, was so beautiful that it just stopped you entirely in your tracks? I, um, there's this, uh, there's this field outside of, and now it's like a big tourist destination, but, but by back then there weren't a lot of people that went like everyone and their mother goes to Starved Rock now and mm-hmm. Mathieson Park and, but maybe like eight or nine years ago, like barely anyone did, just like the locals did. And I was just, I I wasn't a local, but I still went. I always loved to hike. And there's this field outside of the park. And it was just completely unmarked trail. But my friend and I decided to just take that. And it just opened up to this field of sunflowers. And these were the size of, like, they were taller than me. And just thousands and thousands of sunflowers. And it had been a really, really gloomy day. I really thought it was on a pour for the longest time. And the sun just came out the second I walked into that field. And I was like, instances like that is really when I I really truly feel like God's presence. And Mm -hmm. I'm a very proud Muslim to this day. I still am. And I just started just like praying just like just in my mind and as I was praying just all those sunflowers just started just like opening up and turning towards the sun like slowly but surely they started opening up and turning towards the sun and I was like what is this what like this is this is a book like this is a movie like it was it was the most beautiful, relaxing, serene, calm, wonderful feeling and view I have ever felt in my life. And I just felt surrounded by love. Mm-hmm. I loved it. It was amazing. And to this day, I, 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 I love going hiking. To this day, I love being in nature. When I was the student president of Herald at the time, I would try to go hiking during the weekends because I was just such a hectic life. I was working like 60 hours a week while I was the president and going to class there. And I was just so exhausted just mentally and physically, but I always had energy to go on a hike and go to a forest or climb a mountain or, you know, go on a, buy a lake or something. And it would just reinvigorate me and nature and I'm happy to see a lot more people taking it up too. I see a lot more people like hiking and, and, and planting things. I, I just love it. There's, there's medicine in nature. And, I'm, and I love that more and more people are realizing that. I hope I answered your question properly. <laughs> oh my God. Yes, of course. Uh, as you were talking about the sunflower incident, I was thinking about about similar things that have happened to me in my life where suddenly it feels like somehow I am one with 
what is happening in the nature around me, that there's no separation between me and God and the sunflower in your case, or the wind in my case. I had this beautiful experience when I was in college of suddenly feeling like the wind was moving with me. And that if I move my arm, the wind would blow a tree. And if the, 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 if the wind, you know, moved a cloud that it would move me at the same time it was very a very moving (laughs) a a, a very profound experience actually and that's what I was thinking of as you were telling your story sometimes it just all connects it does and sometimes it, it, it it like allows me to just take a step back and just listen and just mm-hmm. be in the moment and let it absolutely envelop you. And yeah, I I understand that feeling. It's wonderful. I also see the poet in you. <laughs> That's awesome. The poet in me? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so there's a little bit. I'm not a great poet, but I think sometimes like like one. I'm I am conscious of not taking up too much of your time. And I was going to ask you one question. I think, I think it's actually a deeply unfair question. Um, and the more I thought about, it, the more unfair it became. And I actually, <laughs> I asked, I asked someone about this, and I said, I think this is an unfair question. What do you think? And she was like, Oh my God, yes. And the question is this: If you, so you're an activist and you're on on fire to change the world. If you could only solve one problem, but you could solve it utterly and completely, what would it be? Yeah, that was a really tough question for me as well. And I knew <laughs> right. you were that when you were talking about it. I was like, oh yeah, she's going to talk about that question. Yeah. And yeah, that is an extremely difficult question. I'm, I'm Palestinian, and sometimes to sometimes even our existence is perceived as a threat. And I've realized that as I grow in my career and I like write articles and stuff and share my voice and people, people love to hate apparently, or love to want to hate. And for a Palestinian to call for freedom people can misconstrue that as it gets misconstrued as the annihilation of another people entirely. And I think that is so problematic and just so inherently incorrect. But when you ask me if I could solve a world problem, I would just blatantly tell you I would free my people and I would free Palestine. Mm. I don't want my village outside of Jerusalem to be surrounded by a 30-foot concrete wall with gun towers pointing their machine guns at us and then for when we fight back or when we throw rocks we're deemed as terrorists and our resistance is is deemed as a justifiable form to wipe us out from the map so I would just free my people I would want my people to live in dignity I would I would call I would call out progressives that are just so gung-ho about everything else, and then they just stop when it comes to Palestine. It, the term is progressive except for Palestine. 
That's when our legislators stop. That's when we re- you want to dive into bipartisan legislation. You look at um, congressional laws. You look at bills passed in the House of Representatives. You look at laws passed in the Senate. You look at uh, military actions throughout the Middle East and the region. And, man, my people have rocks. We have slingshots. And mm-hmm. yet we do not give up. We, we are just so stubborn, and I love it. We will never give up. And when people, when the UN calls for self-determination of, of, of people and society, it always stops short of Palestine. It always stops short of the Palestinians. Oh, no, no, they can't. They can't govern themselves because there's no one there to govern them. Well, you need to, an- you need to ask the question of how. What came, <laughs> what came about that like in the first place? Why is there no one there to, to govern them? Do people do people like highlight the fact that Israel had an entire campaign in the sixties and seventies that assassinated Palestinian intellectuals around the entire world? They were wiped out. No one asks these questions. So just going back to your question, if I could solve a world problem, I would free Palestine. Those are some truths. Not, not beautiful, but I think it's, um, I think it's cowardice. I think it's, I mean, I don't know why I, why I think I should be saying anything about this, except that Americans aren't fond of complexity. I would say some people don't like to be challenged. And when you challenge them, you become a threat. The first time I was called a terrorist in New York was when I wore a Free Palestine shirt. How funny is that? <laughs> uh, I see where you're going. I don't know if I would call it funny, but <laughs> but I <laughs> it's it's kind of ironic. I know, right? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> If you could, if you could send people, is there, is there a, a resource? Is there a, a specific website or someplace where people who need a little education on this subject could go at where, where they could find information? I would just give them a list of books. I would tell them to, to read um, the, the books of um, Razan Kanafani. I would tell them to read um, Edward um, Saad. He, uh, he actually, he, he was a very famous professor here at Columbia. And, and they, he had like, you know, his own like department. And, you know, these, are, these were Palestinian intellectuals that wrote on, on freedom, that wrote on like, what does colonialism even, even, even feel like what it what it's like to be under occupation i would i would implore them to read the books of um um edward said i would tell them to read razan kanafani and there was another man i think he's from um 
he helped out in the Algerian independence movement from France. His name was um, uh, Fanon. These are all people that wrote on colonialism, on occupation, on, on what it feels like to be forgotten and what it feels like to have your voice literally ripped out of your throat. And there's, there's many, many wonderful, wonderful books. I would just tell them to read. <laughs> people need to read more. <laughs> This is, yes, uh, in general, yes. But what I can do uh, is I will myself go look these up and read them for myself. And I will also put them in the show notes so that anybody who wants to find a link to these books and learn more, highly encourage, I please do it. Um, this is, yes, that's what I'm going to say about that. Go do your ed- do your work, do your education. Uh, Samer, you've popped my brain over and over in this podcast, and I, I run out of words. Uh, well, if anyone wants to like reach out to me in regards to Palestine, I am always willing to have one-on-one discussions. I just implore them, I just implore them to come to these conversations with an open mind that is willing to change. Because if you come ready with that confirmation bias, you are just wasting everyone's time. Yep. Yep. Okay. We're going to, I'm going to lighten it up just a little bit now. Um, (laughs) And we're going to just, sorry, I'm going to apologize for that. I, I, it, it, this will probably take a lighter turn, but I, that sounded a little dismissive and I didn't mean it at all. I think it was my own discomfort, my own slight discomfort. Um, That's how you grow. Yes. And I want to acknowledge that. And I'm not going to edit that out. And <laughs> I'm, I'm going to leave that in because you're right. Discomfort is how we grow. Um. But I would, I have the two questions that I ask just about everybody at the end of my podcast episode, which is, um, is there a moment in a movie or a play or a book that never fails to make you either cry or laugh? Unfortunately, uh, because of my, like, past traumas I um it is extremely hard for me to show emotions and I very very rarely like cry or laugh during movies I just like to take it in and 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 watch and read um but this past year I have actively um tried to allow myself to show those emotions and I think there was this like one movie um, what was it called? I think it was like, uh, I know it didn't come out this year, but whatever. I was like living in Columbia's dark dungeon of a library for two years. So I didn't see the sun, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but I finally got around to watch that movie. Um, what's it called? It was like, call me by your name or something. And yes. this like young dude is like, comes out with to this like older guy and it's like this like 
forlorn, I think that's the terminology, um, or star-crossed lovers or something, and they just, mm-hmm. they, they love each other, but they can't, like, be with each other. Oh, my God, that just killed me. <laughs> it's like, I really am actually, a, like, a just huge on, like, I'm a big romantic. Like, you inspire me, oh, and yeah. I will let you <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I always... Aww. Give them poems. It's horrible. <laughs> oh, and a rock. <laughs> poems that you've written yourself? Yeah. <laughs> Yay! I love it. I just love when people write poetry and give it to their 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 people. Um, and a rock. That's, uh, <laughs> you, you give them a poem and a rock. It's like, hey, this pebble made me think of you. Like... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what's the what's what is the 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 coolest rock you've collected, or is it is even like that? Is it just this rock oh, speaks to you and? No, it's like a fossil. It's it's so cool. It's it's I don't I completely forgot where I got it, and, but I keep all my rocks in this like vase instead of like keeping a flower there with like dirt or or water. I just I keep rocks in the vase, and this rock is either like a fossilized like creature or it's part of a larger like bone that has been I guess just frozen in time but it is like pure pure white and you could see like the bone structure and rib cage of the animal it's it's really cool (laughs) yeah that sounds very cool um do you so I occasionally will pick up a rock myself do you remember where you found each one don't what i do want to begin doing is i want to i guess transition for no i don't think i'm going to transition from rocks no rocks are my thing but i'm going to (laughs) get but um i want this book in which i um just keep a flower from like nice memories and just write the date and how i felt with that time and then just tape the flower inside the book so i'm going to move on to flowers oh that's so kind of victorian england of you i am very like, arabian i literally the, the walk around flower. oh is that, is that water <laughs> oh i'm sorry you, you um you cut out there for a second is that an arabian thing too to, to press flowers and and remember things in that way in in my in my memory with um Arabian friends I've had I've gotten instances of that yes but I also I also know that Arabs love flowers like they love flowers there was this line of kings in which they wanted to be remembered as gardeners in the afterlife so the most used emoji in the Middle East is the rose is it really yeah, we're so extra. <laughs> I literally walk around and I keep it in my backpack everywhere I go. And you can ask any single one of my friends where I annoy the living hell out of them. But I always walk around with rose water and it is the best uh-huh. moisturizer ever. All you have to do is just ferment the roses in water and like a week later, it is so fresh and refreshing and it's amazing for your skin. Well, okay. So... We get we get romance and incredible stories and skin tips. That is, <laughs> oh, it's so wonderful. Um, I will remember that. I may have to to ferment some roses. 
It's so easy. Literally, water and roses. Leave it in there for a week. You're good. And then use it for everything. Yeah, in your hair, your skin. Um, I take it with me, like, hiking. It is an amazing uh, refresher. Like, like to put on your skin or to drink? Oh, no, no. Don't drink it. Yeah, to put it on your yes, skin. Yes, it thinks. Okay. I wanted to be very clear. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> this is the last question, and then I'm going to let you go, although I, I really don't want to. This is uh, just an amazing conversation. Um, you sent me a picture. It looks like it's of a sculpture. Um, there are some hills in the background and a tree and some water, and then this, what looks like a kind of circle made of metal. Will you... Tell me about that. Why Why did you pick this picture? Every time I go to this one specific mountain and I hike it, I love to make a little detour and visit this sculpture because it's basically a frame and it's all about perception. And then you look inside the, the circle and you see this beautiful, wonderful view and it's like hills and mountain valleys in the background surrounded by beautiful, pristine water. And it's, it's in New York outside of um, the city and like inside the circle, it's gorgeous, but also outside the circle is gorgeous as well. And that always just reminds me of, it really is just down to your own perception you think like you're in you think that you're in a specific situation and this is all that it is it's everything that's within the circle and then you realize and you grow and you reflect and you realize the frame really is just in your mind you can take a step back and look outside the circle as well i love it mm. It's interesting that you sent this to me. Um, several of my guests have talked about the idea that there is a a huge picture that is kind of everything, and we are all gifted a little piece of that picture. And the more that we can can express our piece and talk with other people about their pieces and see the and see from their perspective, the more we get a larger and broader sense of the entire, the entirety. Um, and you just captured that in a picture, I think. Well, thank you. Yeah, I think it, yeah, you're welcome. I think it's all about perception. And I believe that at the end of the day, that circle really is relative. You could, you could look inside that tiny sculpture or you could look outside and realize a vastly, vastly bigger universe outside that tiny little scene. Hmm. That's my life. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. Well, Samar, I really, I cannot thank you enough for agreeing to do this and for your honesty and your vulnerability and sharing your story. It was truly a privilege and an honor um and I, there are many people in my life that i'm excited to know and you are absolutely one of them 
because um, you are unstoppable. Probably more than anyone I've ever met, I think you are unstoppable, and I cannot wait to see what you do. No pressure. Thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day and basically just inviting me to this. I realize there's power and vulnerability now, and I own my narrative. I want to thank Samer again for talking with me and for being so willing to share his story and his thoughts. As promised, I have added links to the authors he spoke about in the show notes, and I encourage you to take a read. The more we know and understand, the better able we are to create a just and peaceful world. I believe that to my toes. And also check out the Young Invincibles and the work they do trying to create policies that will support and benefit young adults in the U.S. at a time when a lot seems to be stacked against them. You can find out more about them at www.younginvincibles.org. As always, thank you for listening. And if you like what you hear, find us on iTunes and subscribe. Search for The Beautiful and True Project. And if you really like what you hear, why not tell others about us? I hope that listening inspires you to focus on the beautiful and true in your own life. We'll talk again next Sunday. Have a great week.